following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, welcome back to the greatest podcast ever, Larger for Life. Um, meeting here uh, to talk about question 40 with two of my colleagues, Sean Morris, serving a PCA church in Knoxville, Tennessee. I guess Oak Ridge is the appropriate uh, the appropriate address there, right? That's the right. literal address. That's right. Is that a suburb of Knoxville, Sean? I mean, what's going on it's, there? It is. It's on the uh, the northwest side of Greater Knoxville. It was a it was a secret city back in the day, and folks that know the history of it, it was built as a secret town by the federal government uh, as part of the Manhattan Project towards uh, nuclear armament in the World War II. Fascinating history. Very good, very good. So Sean preaches on Sundays and builds nuclear bombs Monday through Saturday, and he takes a short break approved by our president to record these episodes with us. So thank you for your duty. A man's got to make a living, so you do what you got to do. I understand, and, uh, you know, it's that's a very important thing. Um, I would imagine that the the business is going to ramp up here uh, after the election. How about that? Um, but nonetheless, we shall see. <laughs> we, shall see also, yes. we shall see. Uh, um, I'm also uh, here with uh, our our buddy and resident theologian Derek Bright, who pastors uh, First Presbyterian Church in Aliceville, Alabama, um, and so we are going to be talking about uh, this this episode, question forty of the larger catechism, still talking about our mediator, who is Jesus Christ, uh, exploring why did he have to be both God and man? Now, admittedly, uh, before I even read that question, I've missed the past uh, two episodes. And so uh, we've already addressed uh, the idea of Christ, a mediator, Christ, our mediator. We have talked about why it was a requisite that he should be man and why he should be God. Uh, but now we're talking about the hypostatic union. Why does God have to be uh, the God-man in the person of Jesus Christ? And so here's what the catechism question asks. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? The answer, it was requisite that the mediator, who was to reconcile God and man, should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on us, or sorry, and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. Well, you know, as we as we kind of dive into this question, Sean and Derek, one of the things uh, in which we have to understand uh, is I think the active and passive obedience of Jesus uh, that he had to place himself under the law, uh, that he had to obey the law perfectly to fulfill that need for righteousness before a holy God. And at the very same time, he had to, as God, uh, pay the ransom price, we might say, 
uh, for the elect. And so in Johannes Voss's uh, commentary on the larger catechism, the first question that he answers is, why could not God provide two mediators, one divine and the other human, to accomplish the salvation of his people from sin? And he goes on to say, because the relation between the works of each of the two natures required that these two natures must be united into one person. And that's when he begins to talk about the active and passive obedience of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and even in his understanding of this question, as it's asked and answered by the divines, he begins to reference for us um, the author of Hebrews, uh, how he emphasizes the bodily presentation of the mediator before the Father in heaven. Uh, and so he shows himself as the lamb who was slain, the sacrifice for sin, the one who drank the wrath of God to its fullness, but also the one who put himself under the law and obeyed it perfectly, right? And so we have to we have to understand that both of those natures and both of those activities are at play in the person and work of Jesus. We had to have the active and passive obedience, and we had to have, as this catechism is establishing, uh, both God and man in one nature uh, so that he might serve as mediator and unite us to the Father in heaven. And before I even kick this over to uh, Sean or Derek, whoever wants to jump in here, if you have not listened, uh, our listeners, if you have not listened to Sinclair Ferguson's Why the God-Man sermon from a Ligonier conference many years ago, uh, it is fantastic in a in a you know an hour long handling of this hypostatic union that we're talking about uh, on this episode. So I would recommend that to you, and maybe we can even link it somehow in our description um, later on. But Derek, Sean, you know what do you have to say about this great question uh, regarding our mediator, the hypostatic union, being the God Man? Well, like you said, Matt. The, the catechism itself is basically taking us by the hand, and I don't think, I don't think pedantic is a fair word to use here, but it, it really is taking us by the hand and helping us make these necessary you know, theological baby steps to bring it all together, because the previous two questions, it's, it's essentially been answering uh, the question—speaking the, the, to the need, speaking to the requirement, as we've discussed in the previous episodes, uh, as you already alluded to. The utter necessity of why the Savior, why the mediator had to be fully God. And then the next question, the utter necessity of why the Savior, why the ne why the mediator had to be man. And then, as if, you know, in case anyone hasn't already drawn the dot, connected the dots and drawn the pieces together, the catechism is walking us there of to say, and by the way, there's not more than one mediator. There's not a God mediator and then a man mediator, and they work together to cooperate to accomplish your salvation. No, because the mediator must be totally, absolutely, 100% man and totally, absolutely, 100% God, it's requisite, it's necessary, therefore, that he be God and man in one person. And so that's where this, uh, that's what this question is helping us to, to reconcile in our own minds. Uh, and again, we're butting up against the, the edges of profound mystery here. It's not as if we can, in our mortal minds and mentality, could could fully comprehend or wrap around what's being 
uh, spoken to here, but we can speak with the words of Scripture, and we can affirm the teachings of Scripture and the concepts of Scripture, uh, and, and butt up against the edge of mystery here, I think, that he should himself be both God and man in one person in order to reconcile God and man, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on bias as the works of the whole person. And we'll talk a little bit about that, I, I suspect, as the conversation goes on about how you know, we think of, well, Christ acting in his divinity was doing X, Christ acting in his humanity was doing Y, but we don't say all the time. We just say Jesus did X or Jesus did Y, he did X or he did Y. And, you know, our the, the Westminster Confession gets more into this, uh, but it's certainly touched on here and alluded to here uh, in this catechism question. A couple of Bible verses that are just worth reading, I think, because they fuel the conversation, and these are some of the proof texts that the catechism itself uh, supplies and, and our friend Voss makes note of in his in his commentary as well. Uh, Matthew Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 21 and 23, as well as Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, which we've made reference to uh, previously. But Matthew 1, chapter 21, or excuse me, Matthew 1, verse 21 and 23. So this is right after that opening genealogy of Christ in Matthew's Gospel. Y'all will know it well. Our listeners will know it well. The birth of Jesus Christ narrative Matthew 1, 21, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So even in those few verses, you see the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ asserted and affirmed in those two or three verses there from Matthew's Gospel. And, of course, Hebrews 9, verse 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And again, the blood of Christ. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Christ, the Son of God, God doesn't have a body, God doesn't have blood, and yet here's the author of Hebrews saying, the blood of Christ. Well, that's because he is the God-man, and the God-man has blood, has flesh and blood, has these human properties. And there, right there, you see, we can speak of the one person. So divinity, if you want, if you like, the essence of divinity, the essence of a divine nature doesn't have things like tendons and sinews and muscles and skin and blood, but Christ took those on, and so we can say, quite simply, Christ blood, his shed blood, even though perhaps in, to the mindset and the mentality of an old covenant saint, that would have been utterly incomprehensible and, and, and utterly utter nonsense, perhaps. But uh, because of, as, as the catechism helps us understand here, you can speak of the properties with regard to a singular person, whether it's of the divinity or of the humanity. Mm. That, that, that's really good, Sean. And I, I appreciate you bringing up the confession because we we have to remind our listeners, I think, oftentimes that we're, you know, we're dealing with the Westminster standards written by the Westminster divines. That includes a confession, a larger catechism and a shorter catechism. And, and all three of those documents matter in our discussion, of course. And so looking at uh, chapter eight of the Westminster Confession, let's just let's let's hone in on just for a moment. Christ acting as a mediator in his human nature. Right. Um, 
Now we're going to, like Sean said, we're going to talk about what he did in his human nature, what he did in his divine nature, but don't separate those two things uh, in your head while you're listening to our conversation. They're one person united together as, as the, uh, as the confession says fully and perfectly. Um, And so uh, in section three, of chapter eight, Christ the mediator of the Westminster Confession, it says, The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell to that end, uh, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might thoroughly be furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety of salvation. Um, and, and so let's, let's think about just that for a second, because, you know, when we think about the son uh, being the God man, being, you know, fully, truly God and fully, truly man, um, the, the confessions here saying in the catechism say uh, in reference this, this indwelling, uh, of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies and anoints Christ above measure uh, so that he might perform the actions of a mediator in his human nature, right? And so um, we we know uh, that that our obedience to the law, our, our even believing uh, upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, our actions of repentance are all spirit wrought right within ourselves. It's an indwelling of the spirit where the spirit comes and changes our hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh, breathes, uh, breathes breath, breathes air into our, our bones, you know, that, that Ezekiel 36 and 37 language and, and uh, an illustration, if you will, uh, of our salvation. And so, Confession uh, is saying that there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Christ. There is a, an anointing of the Holy Spirit in Christ. But we should not, uh, and I want to be careful how I say this because we're we're butting against mystery. Um, but we should not think that just because the Spirit indwells us as believers, that now we're going to obey the law perfectly as Christ did. Um, because in his human nature, in his act of obedience, the point of the gospel is that Jesus is the better Adam, the better Moses, the better David. Um, he, he's the better covenant. Uh, and so he, he comes in and everywhere and, you know, in every situation that Israel fails and David fails and Adam fails and we fail, Christ succeeds. Christ is completely righteous. His righteousness then and our justification is imputed to us. And so help our listeners wrestle with this, you know, this idea that the the Lord Jesus in his human nature is united to the divine, sanctified and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Because we can get in some some hairy territory uh, when we don't understand that properly, right? Um and Derek's giving me a look like I don't I don't want to touch that. Uh, but but there has to be something there has to be. I don't I don't want to say different, but there has to be something special about the God man to where his human nature and his active obedience 
fulfills the law of God, enacts himself as the mediator, which is something that we cannot do in ourselves, right? We cannot mediate for ourselves. We cannot earn our salvation. Uh, no matter how uh, holy we think we are, right? I, I think I've said this on the on the on the show before, but I, I have a, a Pentecostal leaning friend here in town, and and when we're talking about sanctification and things like that, of course we have a different understanding of it. But but he'll say something along the lines of, you know, I don't think I've sinned in the last three or four months, you know. Uh, and that's mind blowing in and of itself, right? Yeah. Uh, because we've all fallen short of God's glorious standard, and and I think that is what's so special about Christ and His human nature in acting as a mediator. That not only in our failings does He succeed in the face of temptation, but He actually lives a life that is fully glorifying to the Father living, uh, leaving, living up to, we might say, just to put it in simple terms, living up to the standards that God has called for us uh, in our obedience, right? Um, and, and we've talked about this before, and I feel like I'm monologuing a little bit, but, but we have those sins of omission and commission as well that we're guilty of. Uh, we strike out against the law of God, and we fall short of God's standard. In Christ, in his human nature, as our mediator, he is not guilty of either. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is a mystery in and of itself that the confession is trying to help us understand. It is, it's this, this phrase in the confession, above measure, right? Um, and so while I'll, I'll use our, our Baptist friend, H.P. Charles. Uh, he preached a sermon at Twin Lakes a couple of years back. Maybe you both were there. But he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And he said there's a difference in, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, we're all indwelt with the Holy Spirit uh, as, as mortal men under the seed of Adam. Mm -hmm. Uh but we're not always infilled with the Spirit as we ought to be walking in the Spirit. Uh, Jesus, in, in himself, as the God-man, was fully in step with the Holy, with the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and as he was born of a virgin, he was not under the seed of Adam and therefore, in his human nature, can enact as the mediator between God and man in his human nature. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop monologuing there and let y'all share some thoughts on that. Or I handled it perfectly and everybody's ready to move on and, you know, just count me as one of the, the great uh, proper theologians of the day. And with um, that, Derek's ready to lean in and start saying something. <laughs> well, I do think you handled that great. And I, I've just enjoyed the whole thing. And, um, uh, it really makes me think about the Turton quote I read on a previous episode. Um, I won't rehash that. It's a long quote, but, um, you know, crossed, I think it's important to remember, um, crossed is not a human person. He's a divine person with a human nature and a good rule of thumb for listeners is that 
um, natures don't do things. Persons do things through natures, right? Um, they act through natures, um, but it's persons who do things. And so Christ as a divine person who has assumed a human nature to himself lives perfectly obedient. And it, it's so mind blowing to me. And there is a level of mystery here. Um, but, you know, David says in sin, did my mother conceive me? That's not true of Christ, that even in the womb, he was wholly harmless and undefiled. And he went through his entire life, never having a thought that was a sinful thought. And, and sometimes we can um, mystify this truth a little in the wrong direction. Like we do want to affirm mystery, but sometimes we can look at Jesus and say, yeah, he had a human nature, but it wasn't, I mean, he didn't go through the same things that we went through. Like he didn't grow up and he didn't go through, um, you know, the terrible threes or whatever, you know, you call them and he didn't go through puberty and he didn't go through, you know, whatever. No, actually, he was a normal child, right? And who grew up and, and actually aged and went through all the things that we went through. Um, and I, I actually tell sometimes my, um, the children in my, my congregation, you know, um, you're told in the scriptures to obey your father and mother. And sometimes you don't do that very well. Even as a child, you don't you don't obey all the time. Sometimes you don't obey ever, right? It's what it seems like for, for some, I know. Jesus is such a perfect mediator. And he is such a perfect savior that even as a child, he never once disobeyed his mother or father. And so even that, even those sins which you commit by disobeying your parents as a child, even those sins have been atoned for because even Christ, Christ has obeyed his father and his mother in his humanity. And that very obedience is imputed to your account too. It's not just like we think of our sins and we think, Oh, we sin starting at age 16 or something, you know, and, and we get that Christ had to pay for this. Well, 12. 12. Yeah. That's what the Baptist preacher down the road said the other day. So 12. Oh, is that the age of accountability? I got you. Um, so, uh, but you know, we, we go, okay, well, we, we started sinning at a certain age and anything before that, like, it's not really sin. Like it's not on the same level. Um, but that's just not the way that's actually to think that way, actually. Um, and I want to be careful here, but it actually in its own way denigrates the work of the mediator. Right. I mean, it um, because he even had to obey as a child perfectly. And um, and so I'm, I just marvel at, at and, and just I'm awestruck by his um, perfection. And by his obedience and by his work. And, um, you know, Sean mentioned this on a, on another previous episode, maybe the last one, that great, 
quote from Jay Grissom Machen on his deathbed. You know, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Um, and there are some in our, you know, in the larger reformedish world who would want to reject the act of obedience of Christ. And I just want to say, if you have no act of obedience of Christ, I don't think you have a gospel. Um, I think if you lose the act of obedience, you lose salvation. Um, we have to have it. Um, the last thing I'll say is this, because now I'm pulling a mat and monologuing. Um, the last thing I'll say is this, is that in the temptation narrative, I love this. I love this so much. In the temptation narrative, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he undergoes three temptations. And what is happening there? He is actually, whereas Adam was in the garden and full and not needing anything, failed and failed these temptations. Jesus, fasting, hungry, in need, is driven out into the wilderness, faces these temptations and succeeds. Adam, who failed, took him and all of humanity with him from the garden into the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness and takes with him all of you, all of the elect and takes us from the wilderness and he's taking us back into the garden, but it's an even better garden. It's a garden city, a garden temple where there is no sin and no devil, no serpent. And that's why we need the act of obedience. That's why it's important. And um, I, so I just, I love, I love this. I love what Christ does here. And um, we just have a, we just have a wonderful savior. Yeah. Amen. And I, I love that you laid that out there for us. And it's, it's certainly right in line with what uh, the divines are laying out. It's certainly in line with what our, our friend Voss and his commentary is laying out. I mean, God and man in one person so that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us. So, I mean, some of the things that we think of, and Matt, you've already alluded to this uh, earlier in, in the episode, but, you know, what are some of those those things of Christ's human nature that Scripture speaks of that he, he had to do on our behalf? Well, we think of things like, Derek, like you were just saying, obedience to the law, a part of that act of obedience. Uh, Christ, as man, obeyed the law. He endured those sufferings, especially of his death, all of those things. Those are just a few examples of his human nature. Those were essential parts of the work of accomplishing our salvation. And then, you know, on on the flip side, what 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 of his divine nature? What did he have to do? Well, we've we've already sort of touched on this already, but it's worth just reiterating. Through the eternal spirit, Christ offered him a sacrifice, offered himself a sacrifice to God for our sins. Um through this divine nature, Christ offered himself as a sacrifice to God for the sins of his people. That is, his His divinity, his divine nature gave value and efficacy to the sacrifice of the sufferings of his human nature. You had to get both of these aspects from one one person. You needed both that, that law-keeping, that perfect obedience, like you said, Derek. You needed that. But you also needed that, that divinity upholding and undergirding and enabling it, like we talked about a couple episodes ago. There's no way to bifurcate these things. There's no way to divide these things. It was utterly essential. Was there any other way? Seems that, I know that that was a, a, a question that has been 
dealt with in some of the patristics and in the medieval writings in the history of Christianity, but it seems that the Westminster divines are coming down on the side of there was no other way. It had to be this way to accomplish the salvation of God's people. Wasn't it Athanasius who said God became man so that man might become God? And, you know, it's a great play on words, and he doesn't mean that we'll actually be God, right? But um, but you can understand what he's saying there. And um, this is also why it's important to maintain historic, reformed, and broadly Catholic Orthodox Christology. Okay. You, you don't want to fall into the trap of bleeding the natures together, mm-hmm. separating them out to make two persons you know, having a a divine mind, but a human body or whatever. Okay. You don't want to have all those things because the minute you do, the minute you begin to lose grip of that Orthodox Christology, your doctrine of the mediator completely falls apart, completely falls apart. So you've got to reject Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, for you William Lane Craig fans, Neo-Apollinarianism, <laughs> um, you know, Eutychianism, so on and so forth. You've got to hold on to the truth that Christ is one person with two natures that are distinct, but nevertheless um, united together in that one person. So, um Anyways, I just wanted to say, hold fast to to orthodoxy on this. Yeah, and that is why creeds and confessions and catechisms are so helpful, so that we'll make sure that we're we're holding on to this orthodox, uh, this orthodox historical position of Christ. Um, I'm just a biblicist, bro. Oh, man, uh, I'm not even touching it. Uh, I'm going to circle back to uh, the divine nature uh, that that Sean brought up, because one of the things that we also must remember that the catechisms have already handled is the gravity of sin. Um, And so the sin in which Christ is going to take to the cross, the sacrifice for sin cannot just simply be a man. That's what the catechism is getting to. In his divine nature, Christ had to lay down his life for sinners uh, and their iniquities. Because what is sin? I often say uh, that, it, or here in Dylan, that it's cosmic treason. You know, we think of sin on a on a parallel uh, horizontal aspect where, you know, I sin against Derek or I sin against Sean or, or whoever it might be. And that's true. Um, if I sin against Sean, I'm guilty of sin against Sean. But when I'm sinning against Sean, I'm also sinning against the vertical aspect of my relationship as well. I'm sinning against God. And so if there's going to be forgiveness of sin, uh, there has to be a divine nature in Christ because he is the one that we have sinned against. Um, I was preaching through, uh, I've been preaching through Zechariah as I've told my, my listeners or listeners before my listeners. Do you hear me saying that? Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, thank y'all for I, tuning I, in today on the Matt <laughs> Adams radio network. <laughs> yeah. no, 
I, I, I've been preaching through Zechariah, and I came to, uh, you know, Zechariah 12 uh, in Zechariah prophesying of Christ who will be, who will be pierced. And, and in Zechariah 12, it speaks of this mourning over, over the lamb who was slain, mourning over Christ who was pierced. Uh, and I was trying to explain to the congregation, I hope, hopefully I did it somewhat well is Zechariah's not speaking of a morning as in here's Jesus hanging upon the cross at Calvary. Aren't we just heartbroken over the injustice Are, you know, the Roman centurions, the religious establishment of Ju you know, Jerusalem, there are these wicked people who crucified an innocent man. Uh, it's not just that, that Zechariah's trying to get to here. When he says, when we look upon him who was pierced and we mourn over him, it's the fact that it was our sin that placed him upon the cross. Our sin, which is cosmic treason against God, is now being paid for by God himself in the person of Jesus. Um, and so, you know, I referenced that how deep the father's love for us. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, his dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. Um, that is why the divine nature of Christ in the hypostatic union matters, because our sin is ultimately against God, and so only God now can forgive it, and only God can reconcile us to himself, and only uh, God working in the person and work of Jesus can now can now give us a right standing uh, before uh, the Father uh, and, and fill us with His Spirit. And so, you know, the mourning that Zechariah talks about here is this idea. You know, this idea that that Christ, yes, uh, He succeeds where I fail. Uh, he He covers me in His righteousness, despite my unrighteousness. How merciful and wonderful that is! But also. He is God who takes on his determined judgment, uh, his own determined judgment for sin, death, uh, even death on a cross, uh, so that we might be a redeemed people. And that's just, yeah, I mean, like Calvin, all of this doctrine, all of this theology should be driving us to doxology, to our worship, because, you know, like Micah, the prophet says, oh, oh, Lord, who is a God like you that would do such a thing? And that, you know, we should really sit in that, I think, for when we're talking about this, this idea of the God man. No, I think you're right. And don't you love how the catechism gives us permission to intellectually as well as verbally to not tie ourselves all up in knots in articulating and asserting this this wonderful doctrine, you know, you, you can imagine Christians sitting back and thinking, "Oh well, it, Jesus in His divinity did X Y Z, or G, I, I, I mean, Jesus in His humanity did X Y Z." And boy, I hope that the humanity applies to me. But what about the divinity and what 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 He did in the divine? Does that really apply to me? Because I'm I'm in my humanity, and in His divinity He did X, and in His humanity He did Y. And the the, the Catechism just says, "No, no, stop all that. Jesus did X." Jesus did Y, he did X, he did Y, and it applies to you, believer in Christ. It's You, you can keep it that simple. 
You you don't have to tie and tangle yourself up in verbal and intellectual knots trying to make sure you've got your categories uh, fully and beautifully and poignantly articulated in these neat and tidy little boxes of did this divinity thing apply to me in, in this particular regard on Tuesday if it's the after the thirty first of the month or something like that? No, it's don't, I love how the I love how the, uh, the the question puts it there of that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. He did it. Jesus did it. Believe on Jesus. Whether it was his humanity or his divinity that was accomplishing this particular aspect, Jesus did it, the whole person, and it applies to you, believer in Christ. It's applied to your soul, to your salvation, uh, believer in Christ. I mean— We've already mentioned how in the book of Acts, it's the blood of Christ gets referenced there. So even the writers of Scripture have no no problem under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit in just simply saying, you know, uh, ascribing and attributing things which are true of the human nature and just and just ascribing it to the whole, the the singular He. There's just one He. Um, the blood of Christ in Acts is is one example. Uh, I, I like the example from John's Gospel that's also uh, often pointed out from John six six. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 62, uh, what, and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. You know, Son of Man is often that title that's used in connection um, uh, regarding you know, the Son of Man, regarding Christ's divine nature, or, or rather Christ's human nature, um, but and it's saying Son of Man is ascending up. Well, he's ascending up to where he was before. Uh, in heaven, in his eternal pre-existence before he became incarnate. So right there, there's this humanly title ascribed to a divine nature, and uh, John and the Holy Scripture has no problem just putting it out there. Uh, Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Blood of Christ, blood part of Christ's human nature associated with the name God, which belongs to his divine nature. Scripture has no problem just putting those two in conjunction uh the Westminster Larger Catechism has no problem putting those two in conjunction and for us to think on these things and speak on these things plainly and simply. And so there's there's good comfort and permission there, Christian. Communicatio idiomatum. Gesundheit. Communication of idioms. All right. So for our listeners who might be new to this, the properties of the divine word can be ascribed to the man and the properties of the manhood can be predicated of the word, right? So one nature can be attributed, you know, the um, properties of one nature can be attributed to the other. So you got to say, well, God doesn't have blood. No, the human nature had blood, but it's the person and scripture will speak in such a way to attribute, um, to attribute properties to the one nature. So, um, or from one nature to the other. So again, this is another reason you should hold fast to historic reformed orthodoxy helps you understand the scriptures absolutely the glorious benefits won and merited for us by our savior whether in his divine nature or whether in his human nature all those glorious benefits come to us in one singular savior and if you were a biblicist you'd have trouble with this so just saying don't be a biblicist friends don't let friends be biblicists is what i hear our friend Derek saying at you know our our friends over at Presbycast they always end their shows with don't be an erdman should we should we uh should we end our episodes each week with don't be a biblicist i feel like that's what Derek's trying to get to here 
I'm just stuck on you said friends at Presbycast. Well, that's a, that's a generous word, isn't it? We like Resby a lot more than we like Brad. Well, that's I like a lot of people more than I like Brad. So Sean can't. Sean cannot speak to this topic. Brad is a fellow elder at that's right. Covenant Church in Oak Ridge. That's right. Um, you know, I, I, you know, we're right here at at forty minutes or so, guys, and so I know we're going to be wrapping up, but just to just to help our listeners understand that the God man uh, still works and is still active and is still applying the gospel to us. Um, the, the last section of the confession of faith on Christ, the mediator, again, that's chapter eight for our listeners. It says to all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate. It says here the same, uh, but it's talking about the salvation that's brought to us by the act of and passive obedience of Jesus. And this is where it continues. The God man continues now to work by making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word, the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we need to realize and, and to highlight before we close is that the point of our mediator being the God man does not stop at the cross or at the resurrection but it continues on after his ascension into glory, after his session at the right hand of the Father, where now he is still operating as the lamb who was slain as our prophet, priest, and king. Um, and so this matters for us not only in our salvation, but in our sanctification, in our prayer life, um, in our walking in the Spirit, or walking by the Spirit day by day, and ultimately in the promises of our glorification and the consummation of his kingdom forever. And so I just wanted to highlight that, that this is an ongoing mediation that this God man is enacting uh, on, on our behalf, the elect's behalf. That's a lovely segue because um, we've been thinking about straying away from biblicism. And that's a reason why the creeds and the confessions are so utterly important to keep us guarded and bound in historic Catholic lowercase c orthodox Christianity. And uh, there's a new book out uh, regarding the creeds and confessions and why they are so important. There's a new book out by Crossway written by Dr. Carl Truman called Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity. And as I understand it, it's actually an updated edition of the creedal imperative. Uh, so, uh, which is, he wrote mm, 10, 12, 13 years ago uh, regarding uh, just a, that exact thing, why it's imperative that we as Christians believe, affirm, uh, inculcate the teaching of the historic creeds and confessions of the Church. They are good for us. They're good for the health of the Church. They're good for our doctrine, our theology. They're healthy for our souls. Um, this updated uh, edition of the Creedal Imperative, I gather, includes fresh cultural insights uh, regarding the phenomenon of modern individualism, which Professor Truman has written on at length 
here in recent days. And so I think, I don't have the, the pile right in front of me, but I think we have a copy of either this new book uh, from Crossway or the old edition of the Creedal Imperative available as part of our giveaway. So we'll encourage our listeners to uh, like, share, retweet, repost, whatever verbiage you want to use this episode, and you'll be entered into a drawing to win a copy of one of Dr. Truman's books regarding the necessity and the benefit of the creeds and confessions of the church. And that'll be a blessing and a benefit to you, I trust. So friends, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us here today, here at uh, Larger for Life, and we'll look forward to having you join us again next time. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. <laughs>